Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Like so many workers, diplomats had to make their way onto Zoom during the pandemic. Sure, there are fewer posh dinners and side room chats, but diplomacy down the line has proven more efficient and more inclusive than many expected. And from rain rooms to slides to Van Gogh projected onto every surface, we take a look at the rapid growth in immersive art, where the gallery goer is part and parcel of the installation. First, a hundred years ago today, the island of Ireland was partitioned. The South, the Republic, became independent, and the North remained in union with Great Britain. That union continues to be an uneasy one. A gate in the peace line between Catholic and Protestant neighborhoods in Lanark Way, West Belfast, last night. Police were attacked, petrol bombs were thrown, and a bus was set on fire last night. The region's fragile peace has been unsettled by anger over Brexit-related trade problems with the rest of the United Kingdom. Just last week, Arlene Foster resigned as Northern Ireland's leader. A short time ago, I called my party chairman to inform him that I intend to step down She'd fallen out of favor for many reasons, most notably her Democratic Unionist Party's handling of the Brexit deal, which essentially created a border in the sea between Northern Ireland and Britain. Now the DUP faces a leadership contest, and its unionist cause faces a reckoning. Arlene Foster has been First Minister of Northern Ireland for five years, and her time has been so disastrous from her party's perspective that Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom is now more in peril than it has been at any point for decades. Sam McBride writes about Northern Ireland for The Economist. She has arguably done more to push Northern Ireland towards Irish reunification than even her most fervent Irish nationalist opponents And so why exactly did did Arlene Foster resign last week? She didn't give much really explicit reason for this, but she clearly had lost the support of the overwhelming majority of her own party. About 85% of the members of the Stormont Assembly, which she is the first minister of, had signed a letter of no confidence in her leadership. There were several problems that had diminished her support over the last five years. Really, at the heart of that is Brexit. It's the border in the Irish Sea, which has come from Brexit. But also in terms of just basic competence, the ability to do politics 
well. Her leadership was increasingly seen within the party as really ramblingly incoherent, regular U-turns, flip-flops. That really got to a point where people were increasingly frustrated at having to explain those to their constituents. Now the DUP is going to hold a leadership contest, but Mrs Foster has no clear successor within the party. And last week, the Agriculture Minister, Edwin Poots, said he would run. Today, it looks as if long-serving party member Jeffrey Donaldson will announce a bid. But in any case, their pro-UK unionist position is weakened at the moment, as you say. How has that come to be? One of the factors is that Northern Ireland is going through really significant demographic change. This year's census is expected to confirm that Catholics now outnumber Protestants in a state where the boundaries were drawn in 1921 to avoid that ever happening. So that's hugely significant. And even though religion was once the most defining issue between North and South, with Catholics being seen as pro-Irish reunification, Protestants wanting to maintain the link with the rest of the UK, that has weakened. There are now plenty of Catholics in Northern Ireland who want to remain in the United Kingdom, often not for flag-waving reasons, no great personal affinity with Britain, but they don't want to, for instance, give up the free health care of the National Health Service or maybe give up well-paid public sector jobs. It's a pragmatic decision. However, the biggest issue to destabilise the union in Northern Ireland is unquestionably Brexit. Polling shows that support for a reunited Ireland has been increasing ever since Brexit. So how did the unionists and the DUP manage to lose so much support over Brexit? Well, the DUP backed Brexit very enthusiastically in the 2016 referendum. Of course, it wasn't this Brexit they had in mind, one that effectively puts a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. They really took that decision lightly, partly in the expectation that Remain would win. That was the widespread view across the UK and partly for reasons of raw party management. It was popular internally. And then a freakish result in a UK general election in 2017 gave the DUP the balance of power in Westminster. There was a hung parliament, nobody had complete control, and their 10 MPs, even though they're just 1.5% of the chamber in the House of Commons, they were able to anoint Theresa May as Prime Minister. They used their power to then reject Theresa May's plan for a softer form of Brexit, which at least in the short term would have avoided the creation of a border between Britain and Ireland. Instead, they then backed Boris Johnson to be prime minister. He then betrayed them. He agreed with the European Union to create the Irish Sea border, which he'd promised that he would reject. And while many unionists now look back at that, they blame Boris Johnson for betraying them. It's the DUP who ultimately here were outwitted. They failed in their central ideological goal of defending the union. But it has to be said, support for the union with Britain has always been unsteady for a century. Are the failures of this leadership really unique in that regard? Unionism's failure since 2016 is certainly not its first. All the way back to 1921, to the foundation of Northern Ireland, unionist leaders have struggled to bring people together into a really common Northern Irish identity. From the outset, unionists were guaranteed really perpetual power in the new devolved parliament. They oversaw discrimination in favour of their voters. And in the late 1960s, peaceful protests by nationalists who were demanding reform was overtaken by a really vicious IRA campaign, bloody loyalist terrorism. This would go on for three decades. It was known as the Troubles. It ended in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. There's no expectation of that level of violence returning, but there has been some serious rioting significant street disorder over recent weeks. And Northern Ireland's future is now much less certain than it was five years ago. And in light of all that, then how likely do you think reunification prospects are? Northern Ireland splitting off from the UK and joining the Republic? 
Well, Irish nationalists are certainly much more confident these days. But that's not to say a united Ireland is imminent. Polling is inconsistent. But whatever the precise position, few believe that nationalists would win a snap referendum on Irish reunification. The other issue here is the Republic of Ireland and whether they would welcome the North. The Irish Republic is now very far from the quasi-Catholic theocracy it once was. And so those religious differences aren't as strong a political force anymore. But there are practical considerations. Last month, Leo Varadkar, the former Irish Prime Minister, who is now the Deputy Prime Minister in Dublin, warned that unity would not mean simply bolting the North onto the South. It would mean creating an entirely new country with everything that that would entail, from a new flag, an anthem, a new constitution. That is starting to settle in in the consciousness in Dublin. Some in Dublin also worry about a narrow vote for Irish reunification, where you might have, say, a million unionists in Northern Ireland who are really trapped, if you like in a state that they oppose. And it's unionists, in fact, that have been rioting this year, as you say, over the the potential for a move away from Britain towards Ireland. Do you think Arlene Foster's departure from the DUP will appease them, will, will calm those tensions? The violence has died down over recent weeks, but the discontent which lay behind that violence hasn't dissipated. It could be influenced by political developments here. I think that if the DUP returns to its more hardline roots, that might persuade some of these people that their politicians are listening, that there's a political route to their concerns being addressed. But really, the DUP faces a dilemma. Some in the party believe that the party needs to become more moderate to attract those voters who are really leaving unionism entirely. Entirely. But wherever it goes and whoever succeeds Arlene Foster as First Minister of Northern Ireland, they will face the pressure to either remove or at the very least soften the Irish sea border. And they will also need to prepare for the increasingly plausible prospect of a referendum on Irish reunification, perhaps even within the next decade. That is now the big strategic threat for unionism. Thanks very much for joining us, Sam. You're very welcome. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In the 19th century, the telegraph transformed the world of diplomacy. Ambassadors could no longer act just as they saw fit, but could receive news and instructions immediately. More and more planes taxi in, and this one carries Winston Churchill. Then came air travel. By the mid-20th century, leaders could themselves attend summits more often. The cast of what may be the most important conference of the century is filling out. In the past year, diplomacy has changed once again. You might know why. Although G7 foreign leaders are meeting in London this week, the first time they've been together in person in two years, for the most part, since the onset of the pandemic, diplomacy has gone almost entirely online. And that could be a good thing. 
Well, President Joe Biden has actually zipped around the world in his first three months in office. Daniel Franklin is our diplomatic editor. He's dropped in to a G7 leaders meeting in London and the same day hopped over to Munich for the Munich Security Conference. It's great to be with Angela and Emmanuel. We just spent a part of, from Washington perspective, morning together. But, uh, He's convened a big meeting of about 40 leaders on the climate. Good morning to uh, all our colleagues around the world, the world leaders for taking part in this summit. I thank you. He's joined Asian leaders for a so-called quad meeting. Well, hello, everyone. I wish we were able to do this in person. But, it's wonderful. but all of that, of course, has been virtual. He hasn't yet been out of the country as president. What this really shows is the way that diplomacy has, has had to shift because of COVID-19. And we've been talking for over a year now about the degree to which remote working works. Does it in the case of diplomacy? Well, it, it has kept diplomacy ticking over, but it hasn't always been easy. There are some hiccups along the way. So, for example, at the UN Security Council, Russia in particular has refused to accept virtual meetings as official meetings. There's much less pomp. You have to live without the normal diplomatic reception circuit. Britain, when it was in the Security Council chair, for example, instead of hosting the normal reception, had to send uh, everybody a picnic basket instead. So there was an unusual amount of diplomatic importance given to Branston Pickle, for example. So there have been shortcomings, but have there uh, conversely been benefits of, of going about it this way? So it's much easier to convene a summit at short notice. Just this past week, Antony Blinken, the American Secretary of State, did a, a virtual tour of Africa, for example. It takes him very little time to do that, and he can meet a number of people along the way. So the business of diplomacy has managed quite well under the pandemic, and there's also been, as in many other areas, I think, an acceleration of experimentation of things that might have happened anyway, but have happened faster because people have resorted to technology because they haven't been able to meet in person. What kind of experimenting do you mean? Well, I think two things stand out for me. One is that there's been a degree of experimentation with virtual reality and with immersive storytelling. So if you think of the, the traditional report back to the UN Security Council, for example, it's on a printed document, closely typed text. Well, because people haven't been able to get out and report back in quite the same way, there's been some experimentation with using virtual reality to give a real sense of what things are like on the ground. But the really interesting change, I think, has been in bringing in more voices into diplomacy, in particular into conflict resolution diplomacy, than has been easily possible in the past. So what does that look like in practice? So you can, in a country like Libya, for example, you can gather lots of people together virtually, safely, relatively simply. And it turns out also with the use of clever technology in really smart and mass numbers to gather their opinions. And I think that's particularly shown that there's what one veteran diplomat calls a, the possibility of industrial levels of inclusivity, something that's really never been possible before in the physical world. And that really does two things. It allows more people to have their say, feeding into the process, but it also afterwards gives that process a greater 
sense of, of legitimacy and therefore, potentially anyway, a better chance of any agreement actually sticking in practice afterwards because more people have been involved and more people accept that it is not just a, a stitch up at the top. And in the Libyan case, for example, the opinion poll suggested that uh, about 70% of Libyans were satisfied with the outcome of the process to select a new government and thought that that process was fair and transparent. So if that's a sign of of what can be achieved, I think that gives encouragement that this sort of thing can be used again in in other uh, difficult places where that sort of negotiation is, is conducted. But it's hard to imagine that a lot of the human factors of diplomacy can can be replaced in this way. I mean, there is something to be said for, for being in the room, is there not? And, and this is why many diplomats are so keen to get back to physical diplomacy. You know, there's a lot that you don't feel confident in saying over a, a video conference, for example. A lot of the very sensitive stuff is going to be passed only in person. And in the really tricky negotiations, sometimes it's it's the corridor conversations, it's the informal walk in the woods that uh, can help achieve a breakthrough. Ideas can be floated that uh, people find it not so hard to raise in the formal sessions. And chemistry, personal chemistry, reading the body language, building trust, all these things of course, much, much more readily done in in person. So I think what we're heading for is much more of a hybrid model. And the art of it is going to be to pick the right tools for the right job. So perhaps we won't need any more these huge jamborees like the UN General Assembly meeting. A lot of that can happen virtually, but you will still need physical diplomacy for the sensitive stuff, for relationship building And then these other tools that are enabling more inclusive type of diplomacy to happen in conflict resolution in particular, I think they will be used more and more because they're simply allowing something to happen that couldn't happen so easily in the physical world. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more mile-high views of how the world is changing, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Imagine walking into a cavernous room in an art gallery. With each step, digitized flowers start blooming at your feet. As you touch the walls, more flowers projected on the walls start to grow. This immersive experience is by a Japanese art collective called Team Lab. It's at Super Blue Miami an exhibition space that brings people inside the art. It's part of a trend in the contemporary art world that's really blooming. Super Blue is a new place for a new kind of art, and this is a type of art that's been really gathering pace over the last decade. Alex Christie writes about the arts for The Economist. The entire installation is immersive and moves around you so that no visit is actually the same. And these kind of large, complex, often projected digital works are things that the audience actually goes into and enters so that they become part of the artwork. You say immersive, but tell me more. What is meant by immersive art? So it's basically an experience. An immersive piece is an artistic environment that the participant enters into. And if you think about it, this is something that goes back to the dawn of human history, to cave paintings, but also think about the Gothic Cathedral, which has this incredible immersive 
light and sonic experience. It's something that has always been part of human art experience. But really, in the last couple of centuries, sort of since the 19th century, we've been focused on individual artists making objects, sculptures, and paintings. And that has only really shifted probably starting in about the 1960s. And art has become immersive and communal once again. And why is that, do you think? Why is immersive art having a moment now? Well, I think it has a lot of different reasons. Partially, I think people in the rich world, at least, have enough stuff. You know, the object is not as exciting to them as the experience. And people are kind of hungry for touch, for getting away from their screens. That's always a big one. They want to actually have an experience of awe and connection. And these experiences come in all different forms. There are so many different kinds. And one of the things that has been interesting is to look at the different types. So things like the rain room, which was in London at the Barbican, where you walk through a rain landscape, but you remain completely dry. Many people who've been to the Tate uh, Modern have slid down a slide or walked through a, a room full of fog. Oh, my God. There are no fewer than five different touring exhibits in the United States of so-called immersive Van Gogh shows. And what these are, they're laser projections and animations of Van Gogh's paintings. Broadcast hugely surround sound, very immersive. I mean, another thing that that sets it apart from a standard museum experience is that it, it, I mean, it all sounds a bit expensive. Well, it is, and it's something that has been slowly but surely outgrowing the museum and the gallery. They have had to come up with an entirely different model to finance these installations. They're very expensive, as you say, technologically very complex and often large. So what's happened is there's a new model that is based on ticket sales which historically in the art world has been anathema, certainly to galleries, but you need to treat them like a performance, like a music venue or a theater venue, and simply sell tickets. Um, And Hannes Koch of Random International, which is the collective behind the Rain Room, he has a forthcoming really cool installation in which visitors paint with light. He puts it this way. I think we're just going back full circle to, you know, a few hundred years ago, Renaissance, where you need it. You know, patrons, I think this romantic idea of the soul painter is that's out of the wind. Like in this line, it's, you know, it still exists. It's has huge validity. But I think for us, we're going thoroughly back to the Renaissance model where, you know, somebody gives you X, Y, Z and you go and paint it, you know, boom. What's interesting about a lot of these projects, Superblue in particular, was initially funded by innovators in Silicon Valley including the widow of Steve Jobs, Lorraine Powell Jobs. And part of the reason for that is they're very big projects. They're almost in the realm of public art projects, some of them, and need a broker to organize the financing. And what's your sort of personal take on the shift here? I mean, I imagine the purists of the art world might call a lot of this just gimmickry. Like any art, it runs the gamut. It's all in the execution. And is it good? Is it merely entertainment. There will always be people who sneer at the next new thing, but people really are looking for that experience of awe. So I don't mind. If it's not something that I particularly like, I still think it's a gateway into appreciating art, and that's good enough for me. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. 
If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.